Chapter Seventeen, Part Two of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. I was on a mission for Tiberius, and it was my ill luck to see little of Miriam. On my return from the court of Antipas, she had gone into Batania to Philip's court, where was her sister. Once again, I was back in Jerusalem, and though it was no necessity of my business to see Philip, who, though weak, was faithful to Roman will, I journeyed into Batania in the hope of meeting with Miriam. Then there was my trip into Idumea. Also I travelled into Syria in obedience to the command of Sulpicius Curanius, who, as imperial legate, was curious of my first-hand report of affairs in Jerusalem. Thus, travelling wide and much, I had opportunity to observe the strangeness of the Jews who were so madly interested in God. It was their peculiarity. Not content with leaving such matters to their priests, they were themselves forever turning priests and preaching wherever they could find a listener, and listeners they found a plenty. They gave up their occupations to wander about the country like beggars, disputing and bickering with the rabbis and Talmudists in the synagogues and temple porches. It was in Galilee, a district of little repute, the inhabitants of which were looked upon as witless, that I crossed the track of the man Jesus. It seems that he had been a carpenter, and after that a fisherman, and that his fellow fishermen had ceased dragging their nets and followed him in his wandering life. Some few looked upon him as a prophet, but the most contended that he was a madman. My wretched horse-boy, himself claiming Talmudic knowledge second to none, sneered at Jesus, calling him the king of the beggars, calling his doctrine Ebionism, which, as he explained to me, was to the effect that only the poor should win to heaven, while the rich and powerful were to burn for ever in some lake of fire. It was my observation that it was the custom of the country for every man to call every other man a madman. In truth, in my judgment, they were all mad. There was a plague of them. They cast out devils by magic charms, cured diseases by the laying on of hands, drank deadly poisons unharmed, and unharmed played with deadly snakes. Or, so they claimed. They ran away to starve in the deserts. They emerged howling new doctrine, gathering crowds about them, forming new sects that split on doctrine and formed more sects. By Odin, I told Pilate, a trifle of our northern frost and snow would cool their wits. This climate is too soft. In place of building roofs and hunting meat, they are ever building doctrine. And altering the nature of God, Pilate corroborated sourly, a curse on doctrine. So say I, I agreed. If ever I get away with unaddled wits from this mad land, I'll cleave through whatever man dares mention to me what may happen after I am dead. Everything under the sun was pious or impious to them. They who were so clever in hair-splitting argument, seemed incapable of grasping the Roman idea of the state. Everything political was religious. Everything religious was political. Thus every procurator's hands were full. The Roman eagles, the Roman statues, even the votive shields of Pilate, were deliberate insults to their religion. The Roman taking of the census was an abomination. Yet it had to be done, for it was the basis of taxation. But there it was again. Taxation by the state was a crime against their law and God. Oh, that law! It was not Roman law. It was their law, what they called God's law. There were the zealots who murdered anybody who broke this law. 
and for a procurator to punish a zealot caught red-handed was to raise a riot or an insurrection. Everything, with these strange people, was done in the name of God. There were what we Romans called the Thaumaturga. They worked miracles to prove doctrine. Ever has it seemed to me a witless thing to prove the multiplication table by turning a staff into a serpent, or even into two serpents. Yet these things the Thaumaturgia did, and always to the excitement of the common people. Heavens, what sex and sex! Pharisees, Essenes, Sadducees, a legion of them. No sooner did they start with a new quirk when it turned political. Caponius, procurator forth before Pilate, had a pretty time crushing the Golanite sedition which arose in this fashion, and spread down from Gamala. In Jerusalem, the last time I rode in, it was easy to note the increasing excitement of the Jews. They ran about in crowds, chattering and spouting. Some were proclaiming the end of the world. Others satisfied themselves with the eminent destruction of the temple. And there were rank revolutionists who announced that Roman rule was over, and the new Jewish kingdom was about to begin. Pilate, too, I noted, showed heavy anxiety. That they were giving him a hard time of it was patent. But I will say, as you shall see, that he matched their subtlety with equal subtlety. And from what I saw of him, I have little doubt but what he would have confounded many a disputant in the synagogues. But half a legion of Romans, he regretted to me, and I would take Jerusalem by the throat, and then be recalled for my pains, I suppose. Like me, he had not much faith in the auxiliaries, and of Roman soldiers we had but a scant handful. Back again I lodged in the palace, and to my great joy found Miriam there. But little satisfaction was mine, for the talk ran long on the situation. There was reason for this, for the city buzzed like the angry hornet's nest it was. The fast called the Passover, a religious affair, of course, was near, and thousands were pouring in from the country, according to custom, to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. These newcomers, naturally, were all excitable folks, else they would not be bent on such pilgrimage. The city was packed with them, so that many camped outside the walls. As for me, I could not distinguish how much of the ferment was due to the teachings of the wandering fishermen, and how much of it was due to Jewish hatred for Rome. A tithe, no more, and maybe not so much, is due to this Jesus, Pilate answered my query. Look to Caiaphas and Hanan for the main cause of the excitement. They know what they are about. They are stirring it up, to what end who can tell, except to cause me trouble. Yes, it is certain that Caiaphas and Hanan are responsible, Miriam said. But you, Pontius Pilate, are only a Roman and do not understand. Were you a Jew— you would realize that there is a greater seriousness at the bottom of it than mere dissension of the sectaries or trouble-making for you and Rome. The high priests and Pharisees, every Jew of place or wealth, Philip, Antipas, myself, we are all fighting for very life. This fisherman may be a madman. If so, there is a cunning in his madness. He preaches the doctrine of the poor. He threatens our law, and our law is our life, as you have learned ere this. We are jealous of our law, as you would be jealous of the heir denied your body by a throttling hand on your throat. It is Caiaphas and Hanan, and all they stand for, or it is the fishermen. They must destroy him, else he will destroy them. Is it not strange, so simple a man, a fisherman? Pilate's wife breathed forth. What manner of man can he be to possess such power? 
I would that I could see him. I would that with my own eyes I could see so remarkable a man. Pilate's brows corrugated at her words, and it was clear that to the burden on his nerves was added the overwrought state of his wife's nerves. If you would see him, beat up the dens of the town, Miriam laughed spitefully. You will find him wine-bibbing or in the company of nameless women. Never so strange a prophet came up to Jerusalem. And what harm in that, I demanded, driven against my will to take the part of the fisherman. Have I not wine-guzzled a plenty and passed strange nights in all the provinces? The man is a man, and his ways are men's ways, else I am a madman, which I here deny. Miriam shook her head as she spoke. He is not mad. Worse, he is dangerous. All Ebionism is dangerous. He would destroy all things that are fixed. He is a revolutionist. He would destroy what little is left to us of the Jewish state and temple. Here Pilate shook his head. He is not political. I have had report of him. He is a visionary. There is no sedition in him. He affirms the Roman tax even. Still, you do not understand, Miriam persisted. It is not what he plans. It is the effect, if his plans are achieved, that makes him a revolutionist. I doubt that he foresees the effect. Yet is the man a plague, and, like any plague, should be stamped out. From all that I have heard, he is a good-hearted, simple man with no evil in him, I stated. And thereat I told of the healing of the ten lepers I had witnessed in Samaria on my way through Jericho. Pilate's wife sat entranced at what I told. Came to our ears distant shoutings and cries of some street crowd, and we knew the soldiers were keeping the streets cleared. "'And you believe this wonder, Ludbrook?' Pilate demanded. "'You believe that in the flash of an eye the festering sores departed from the lepers?' "'I saw them healed,' I replied. "'I followed them to make certain. There was no leprosy in them.' "'But did you see them sore before the healing?' Pilate insisted." I shook my head. I was only told so, I admitted. When I saw them afterward, they had all the seeming of men who had once been lepers. They were in a daze. There was one who sat in the sun and ever searched his body and stared and stared at the smooth flesh as if unable to believe his eyes. He would not speak nor look at aught else than his flesh when I questioned him. He was in a maze. He sat there in the sun and stared and stared. Pilate smiled contemptuously, and I noted the quiet smile on Miriam's face was equally contemptuous. And Pilate's wife sat as if a corpse, scarce breathing, her eyes wide and unseen. Spoke ambivious. Siaphus holds, he told me but yesterday, that the fisherman claims that he will bring God down on earth and make here a new kingdom over which God will rule. Which would mean the end of Roman rule, I broke in. This is where Siaphus and Hanan plot to embroil Rome, Miriam explained. It is not true. It is a lie they have made. Pilate nodded and asked, Is there not somewhere in your ancient books a prophecy that the priests here twist into the intent of this fisherman's mind? To this she agreed and gave him the citation. I relate the incident to evidence the depth of Pilate's study of this people he strove so hard to keep in order. What I have heard... Miriam continued, is that Jesus preaches the end of the world and the beginning of God's kingdom, not here, but in heaven. I have had report of that, Pilate said. It is true. 
This Jesus holds the justness of the Roman tax. He holds that Rome shall rule until all rule passes away with the passing of the world. I see more clearly the trick Hannon is playing me. It is even claimed by some of his followers, Ambivius volunteered, that he is God himself. I have no report that he has so said, Pilate replied. Why not? his wife breathed. Why not? Gods have descended to earth before. Look, you, Pilate said, I have it by credible report that after this Jesus had worked some wonder whereby a multitude was fed on several loaves and fishes, the foolish Galileans were for making him a king. Against his will they would make him a king. To escape them he fled into the mountains. No madness there. He was too wise to accept the fate they would have forced upon him. Yet that is the very trick Hannon would force upon you, Miriam reiterated. They claim for him that he would be king of the Jews, an offense against Roman law. Wherefore Rome must deal with him. Pilate shrugged his shoulders. A king of the beggars, rather, or a king of the dreamers. He is no fool. He is a visionary, but not visionary of this world's power. All luck go with him in the next world, for that is beyond Rome's jurisdiction. He holds that property is sin. That is what hits the Pharisees, Ambivius spoke up. Pilate laughed heartily. The king of the beggars and his fellow beggars still do respect property, he explained. For look you, not long ago they had even a treasurer for their wealth. Judas was his name, and there were words in that he stole from their common purse which he carried. Jesus did not steal? Pilate's wife asked. No, Pilate answered. It was Judas, the treasurer. Who was this John? I questioned. He was in trouble up Tiberius way, and Antipas executed him. Another one, Miriam answered. He was born near Hebron. He was an enthusiast and a desert dweller. Either he or his followers claimed that he was Elijah raised from the dead. Elijah, you see, was one of our old prophets. Was he seditious? I asked. Pilate grinned and shook his head, then said, he fell out with Antipas over the matter of Herodias. John was a moralist. It is too long a story, but he paid for it with his head. No, there was nothing political in that affair. It is also claimed by some that Jesus is the son of David, Miriam said. But it is absurd. Nobody at Nazareth believes it. You see, his whole family, including his married sisters, lives there and is known to all of them. They are a simple folk, mere common people. I wish it were as simple, the report of all this complexity that I must send to Tiberius, Pilate grumbled, and now this fisherman is come to Jerusalem. The place is packed with pilgrims ripe for any trouble, and Hanan stirs and stirs the broth. And before he is done, he will have his way, Miriam forecast. He has laid the task for you, and you will perform it. Which is, Pilate queried, the execution of this fisherman. Pilate shook his head stubbornly, but his wife cried out, No, no, it would be a shameful wrong. The man has done no evil. He has not offended against Rome. She looked beseechingly to Pilate, who continued to shake his head. Let them do their own beheading, as Antipas did, he growled. The fisherman counts for nothing, but I shall be no cat's paw to their schemes. If they must destroy him, they must destroy him. That is their affair. But you will not permit it cried Pilate's wife. A pretty time would I have explaining to Tiberius if I interfered, was his reply. No matter what happens, said Miriam, 
I can see you writing explanations, and soon, for Jesus is already come up to Jerusalem, and a number of his fishermen with him. Pilate showed the irritation this information caused him. I have no interest in his movements, he pronounced. I hope never to see him. Trust Hannon to find him for you, Miriam replied, and to bring him to your gate. Pilate shrugged his shoulders, and there the talk ended. Pilate's wife, nervous and overwrought, must claim Miriam to her apartments, so that nothing remained for me but to go to bed and doze off to the buzz and murmur of the city of madmen. Events moved rapidly. Overnight the white heat of the city had scorched upon itself. By midday, when I rode forth with half a dozen of my men, the streets were packed, and more reluctant than ever were the folk to give way before me. If looks could kill, I should have been a dead man that day. Openly they spat at sight of me, and everywhere arose snarls and cries. Less was I a thing of wonder, and more was I the thing hated in that I wore the hated harness of Rome. Had it been any other city, I should have given command to my men to lay the flats of their swords on those snarling fanatics. But this was Jerusalem, at fever heat, and these were a people unable in thought to divorce the idea of state from the idea of God. Hanan the Sadducee had done his work well. No matter what he and the Sanhedrin believed of the true inwardness of the situation, it was clear this rabble had been well tutored to believe that Rome was at the bottom of it. I encountered Miriam in the press. She was on foot, attended only by a woman. It was no time in such turbulence for her to be abroad, garbed as became her station. Through her sister she was indeed sister-in-law to Antipas, for whom few bore love. So she was dressed discreetly, her face covered, so that she might pass as any Jewish woman of the lower orders. But not to my eye could she hide that fine stature of her, that carriage and walk, so different from other women's, of which I had already dreamed more than once. Few and quick were the words we were able to exchange, for the way jammed on the moment, and soon my men and horses were being pressed and jostled. Miriam was sheltered in an angle of house-wall. "'Have they got the fisherman yet?' I asked. "'No, but he is just outside the wall. He has ridden up to Jerusalem on an ass, with a multitude before and behind, and some, poor dupes, have hailed him as he passed as king of Israel. That finally is the pretext with which Hanan will compel Pilate. Truly, though not yet taken, the sentence is already written. This fisherman is a dead man.' "'But Pilate will not arrest him,' I defended. Miriam shook her head. Hanan will attend to that. They will bring him before the Sanhedrin. The sentence will be death. They may stone him. But the Sanhedrin has not the right to execute, I contended. Jesus is not a Roman, she replied. He is a Jew. By the law of the Talmud he is guilty of death, for he has blasphemed against the law. Still I shook my head. The Sanhedrin has not the right. Pilate is willing that it should take that right. "'But it is a fine question of legality,' I insisted. "'You know what the Romans are in such matters.' "'Then will Hanan avoid the question,' she smiled, "'by compelling Pilate to crucify him. "'In either event it will be well.' "'A surging of the mob was sweeping our horses along "'and grinding our knees together. "'Some fanatic had fallen, "'and I could feel my horse recoil and half-rear as it tramped on him, "'and I could hear the man screaming "'and the snarling menace from all about rising to a roar. 
but my head was over my shoulder as I called back to Miriam. You are hard on a man you have said yourself is without evil. I am hard upon the evil that will come to him if he lives, she replied. Scarcely did I catch her words, for a man sprang in, seizing my bridle rein and leg and struggling to unhorse me. With my open palm leaning forward, I smote him full upon cheek and jaw. My hand covered the face of him, and a hearty will of weight was in the blow. The dwellers in Jerusalem are not used to man's buffets. I have often wondered since if I broke the fellow's neck. Next I saw Miriam was the following day. I met her in the court of Pilate's palace. She seemed in a dream. Scarce her eyes saw me. Scarce her wits embraced my identity. So strange was she, so in daze and amaze and far-seen were her eyes, that I was reminded of the lepers I had seen healed in Samaria. She became herself by an effort, but only her outward self. In her eyes was a message unreadable. Never before had I seen woman's eyes so. She would have passed me ungreeted had I not confronted her way. She paused and murmured words mechanically, but all the while her eyes dreamed through me and beyond me with the largeness of the vision that filled them. I have seen him, Ludbrook, she whispered. I have seen him. The gods grant that he is not so ill-affected by the sight of you, whoever he may be, I laughed. She took no notice of my poor-time jest, and her eyes remained full with vision, and she would have passed on had I not again blocked her way. "'Who is this he?' I demanded. "'Some man raised from the dead to put such strange light in your eyes?' "'One who has raised others from the dead,' she replied. "'Truly I believe that he, this Jesus, has raised the dead. He is the Prince of Light, the Son of God. I have seen him. Truly I believe that he is the Son of God.' Little could I glean from her words, save that she had met this wandering fisherman, and had been swept away by his folly. For surely this Miriam was not the Miriam who had branded him a plague, and demanded that he be stamped out as any plague. "'He has charmed you,' I cried angrily. Her eyes seemed to moisten and grow deeper as she gave confirmation. "'Oh, Lodebrook, he is charmed beyond all thinking, beyond all describing.' but to look upon him is to know that here is the all-soul of goodness and of compassion. I have seen him, I have heard him, I shall give all I have to the poor, and I shall follow him. Such was her certitude that I accepted it fully, as I had accepted the amazement of the lepers of Samaria, staring at their smooth flesh. And I was bitter that so great a woman should be so easily wit-addled by a vagrant wonder-worker. Follow him, I sneered. Doubtless you will wear a crown when he wins to his kingdom. She nodded affirmation, and I could have struck her in the face for her folly. I drew aside, and as she moved slowly on, she murmured, His kingdom is not here. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. He is whatever he has said, or whatever has been said of him that is good and great. A wise man of the East, I found Pilate chuckling. He is a thinker, this unlettered fisherman. I have sought more deeply into him. I have fresh report. He has no need of wonder-workings. He out-sophisticates the most sophistical of them. They have laid traps, and he has laughed at their traps. Look you, listen to this. Whereupon he told me how Jesus had confounded his confounders when they brought to him for judgment a woman taken in adultery. And the tax, Pilate exulted on, to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's, was his answer to them. 
This was Hannon's trick, and Hannon is confounded. At last has there appeared one Jew who understands our Roman conception of the state. Next I saw Pilate's wife. Looking into her eyes I knew, on the instant, after having seen Miriam's eyes, that this tense, distraught woman had likewise seen the fisherman. "'The divine is within him,' she murmured to me. "'There is within him a personal awareness of the indwelling of God.' "'Is he God?' I queried gently, for say something I must. She shook her head. "'I do not know. He has not said. But this I know. Of such stuff gods are made.' "'A charmer of women,' was my privy judgment, as I left Pilate's wife walking in dreams and visions. The last days are known to all of you who read these lines, and it was in those last days that I learned that this Jesus was equally a charmer of men. He charmed Pilate. He charmed me. After Hanan had sent Jesus to Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, assembled in Caiaphas's house, had condemned Jesus to death, Jesus, escorted by a howling mob, was sent to Pilate for execution. Now for his own sake and for Romans' sake, Pilate did not want to execute him. Pilate was little interested in the fishermen and greatly interested in peace and order. What cared Pilate for a man's life, or for many men's lives? The school of Rome was iron, and the governors sent out by Rome to rule conquered peoples were likewise iron. Pilate thought and acted in governmental abstractions. Yet look, when Pilate went out scowling to meet the mob that had fetched the fishermen, he fell immediately under the charm of the man. I was present, I know. It was the first time Pilate had ever seen him. Pilate went out angry. Our soldiers were in readiness to clear the court of its noisy vermin. And immediately Pilate laid eyes on the fisherman, Pilate was subdued. Nay, was solicitous. He disclaimed jurisdiction, demanded that they should judge the fisherman by their law, and deal with him by their law, since the fisherman was a Jew and not a Roman. Never were their Jews so obedient to Roman rule. They cried out that it was unlawful, under Rome, for them to put any man to death. Yet Antipas had beheaded John and come to no grief of it. And Pilate left them in the court, open under the sky, and took Jesus alone into the judgment hall. What happened therein I know not, save that when Pilate emerged he was changed. Whereas before he had been disinclined to execute because he would not be made a cat's paw to Hanan, he was now disinclined to execute because of regard for the fisherman. His effort now was to save the fisherman, and all the while the mob cried, Crucify him! Crucify him! You, my reader, know the sincerity of Pilate's effort. You know how he tried to befool the mob, first by mocking Jesus as a harmless fool, and second by offering to release him according to the custom of releasing one prisoner at the time of the Passover. And you know how the priest's quick whisperings led the mob to cry out for the release of the murderer Baraba. In vain Pilate struggled against the fate being thrust upon him by the priests. By sneer and jibe he hoped to make a farce of the transaction. He laughingly called Jesus the King of the Jews, and ordered him to be scourged. His hope was that all would end in laughter, and in laughter be forgotten. I am glad to say that no Roman soldiers took part in what followed. It was the soldiers of the auxiliaries who crowned and cloaked Jesus, put the reed of sovereignty in his hand, and, kneeling, hailed him King of the Jews. Although it failed, it was a play to placate. And I, looking on, learned the charm of Jesus. Despite the cruel mockery of situation, he was regal, 
and I was quiet as I gazed. It was his own quiet that went into me. I was soothed and satisfied, and it was without bewilderment. This thing had to be. All was well. The serenity of Jesus in the heart of the tumult and pain became my serenity. I was scarce moved by any thought to save him. On the other hand, I had gazed on too many wonders of the human in my wild and varied years to be affected to foolish acts by this particular wonder. I was all serenity. I had no word to say. I had no judgment to pass. I knew that things were occurring beyond my comprehension, and that they must occur. Still, Pilate struggled. The tumult increased. The cry for blood rang through the court, and all were clamoring for crucifixion. Again Pilate went back into the judgment hall. His effort at a farce having failed, he attempted to disclaim jurisdiction. Jesus was not of Jerusalem. He was a born subject of Antipas, and to Antipas Pilate was for sending Jesus. But the uproar was by now communicating itself to the city. Our troops outside the palace were being swept away in the vast street mob. Rioting had begun that in the flash of an eye could turn into civil war and revolution. My own twenty legionaries were close to hand and in readiness. They loved the fanatic Jews no more than did I, and would have welcomed my command to clear the court with naked steel. When Pilate came out again, his words for Antipas's jurisdiction could not be heard, for all the mob was shouting that Pilate was a traitor, and that if he let the fisherman go, he was no friend of Tiberius. Close before me, as I leaned against the wall, a mangy, bearded, long-haired fanatic sprang up and down unceasingly, and unceasingly chanted, Tiberius is emperor, there is no king, Tiberius is emperor, there is no king. I lost patience. The man's near noise was an offense. Lurching sideways, as if by accident, I ground my foot on his to a terrible crushing. The fool seemed not to notice. He was too mad to be aware of the pain, and he continued to chant, Tiberius is emperor, there is no king. I saw Pilate hesitate. Pilate, the Roman governor, for the moment was Pilate the man, with a man's anger against the miserable creatures clamoring for the blood of so sweet and simple, brave and good a spirit as this Jesus. I saw Pilate hesitate. His gaze roved to me, as if he were about to signal to me to let loose, and I half started forward, releasing the mangled foot under my foot. I was for leaping to complete that half-formed wish of Pilate, and to sweep away in blood, and cleanse the court of the wretched scum that howled in it. It was not Pilate's indecision that decided me. It was this Jesus that decided Pilate and me. This Jesus looked at me. He commanded me. I tell you, this vagrant fisherman, this wandering preacher, this piece of driftage from Galilee, commanded me. No word he uttered. Yet his command was there, unmistakable as a trumpet call. And I stayed my foot and held my hand. For who was I to thwart the will and way of so greatly serene and sweetly sure a man as this? And as I stayed, I knew all the charm of him. All that in him had charmed Miriam and Pilate's wife, that had charmed Pilate himself. You know the rest. Pilate washed his hands of Jesus' blood, and the rioters took his blood upon their own hands. Pilate gave orders for the crucifixion. The mob was content, and content behind the mob were Caiaphas, Hanan, and the Sanhedrin. Not Pilate, not Tiberius, not Roman soldiers crucified Jesus. It was the priestly rulers and priestly politicians of Jerusalem. I saw, I know, and against his own best interests, 
Pilate would have saved Jesus, as I would have, had it not been that no other than Jesus himself willed that he was not to be saved. Yes, and Pilate had his last sneer at this people he detested. In Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, he had a writing affixed to Jesus' cross which read, The King of the Jews. In vain the priests complained. It was on this very pretext that they had forced Pilate's hand, and by this pretext, a scorn and insult to the Jewish race, Pilate abided. Pilate executed an abstraction that had never existed in the real. The abstraction was a cheat and a lie manufactured in the priestly mind. Neither the priests nor Pilate believed it. Jesus denied it. That abstraction was the king of the Jews. The storm was over in the courtyard. The excitement had simmered down. Revolution had been averted. The priests were content, the mob was satisfied, and Pilate and I were well disgusted and weary with the whole affair. And yet, for him and me, was more and most immediate storm. Before Jesus was taken away, one of Miriam's women called me to her, and I saw Pilate, summoned by one of his wife's women, likewise obey. Oh, Ludbrook, I have heard. Miriam met me. We were alone, and she was close to me, seeking shelter and strength within my arms. Pilate has weakened. He is going to crucify him. But there is time. Your own men are ready. Ride with them. Only a centurion and a handful of soldiers are with him. They have not yet started. As soon as they do start, follow. They must not reach Golgotha but wait until they are outside the city wall. Then countermand the order. Take an extra horse for him to ride. The rest is easy. Ride away into Syria with him, or into Idumea, or anywhere, so long as he be saved. She concluded with her arms around my neck, her face upturned to mine and temptingly close, her eyes greatly solemn and greatly promising. Small wonder I was slow of speech. For the moment there was but one thought in my brain. After all the strange play I had seen played out, to have this come upon me. I did not misunderstand. The thing was clear. A great woman was mine if, if I betrayed Rome. For Pilate was governor, his order had gone forth, and his voice was the voice of Rome. As I have said, it was the woman of her, her sheer womanliness, that betrayed Miriam and me in the end. Always she had been so clear, so reasonable, so certain of herself and me, so that I had forgotten, or rather, I there learned once again the eternal lesson learned in all lives, that woman is ever woman, that in great decisive moments woman does not reason but feels, that the last sanctuary and innermost pulse to conduct is in woman's heart and not in woman's head. Miriam misunderstood my silence for her body moved softly within my arms as she added, as if in afterthought, "'Take two spare horses, Ludbrook. I shall ride the other, with you, with you, away over the world, wherever you may ride.' It was a bribe of kings. It was an act, paltry and contemptible, that was demanded of me in return. Still I did not speak. It was not that I was in confusion or in any doubt. I was merely sad, greatly and suddenly sad, in that I knew I held in my arms what I would never hold again. "'There is but one man in Jerusalem this day who can save him,' she urged. "'And that man is you, Ludbrook.' Because I did not immediately reply, she shook me. As if in impulse to clarify wits she considered addled. She shook me till my harness rattled. "'Speak, Ludbrook, speak,' she commanded. "'You are strong and unafraid. You are all man.' 
I know you despise the vermin who would destroy him. You, you alone can save him. You have but to say the word, and the thing is done, and I will well love you and always love you for the thing you have done. I am a Roman, I said slowly, knowing full well that with the words I gave up all hope of her. You are a manslave of Tiberius, a hound of Rome, she flamed. But you owe Rome nothing, for you are not a Roman. You yellow giants of the north are not Romans. The Romans are the elder brothers of us younglings of the north, I answered. Also I wear the harness and I eat the bread of Rome. Gently I added, But why all this fuss and fury for a mere man's life? All men must die. Simple and easy it is to die. Today, or a hundred years, it little matters. Sure we are, all of us, of the same event in the end. Quick she was, and alive with passion to save as she thrilled within my arms. You do not understand, Lodbrook. This is no mere man. I tell you, this is a man beyond men, a living God, not of men, but over men. I held her closely and knew that I was renouncing all the sweet woman of her as I said, We are man and woman, you and I. Our life is of this world. Of these other worlds is all a madness. Let these mad dreamers go the way of their dreaming. Deny them not what they desire above all things, above meat and wine, above song and battle, even above love of woman. Deny them not their heart's desire that draw them across the dark of the grave to their dreams of lives beyond this world. Let them pass, but you and I abide here in all the sweet we have discovered of each other. Quickly enough will come the dark, and you depart for your coasts of sun and flowers, and I for the roaring table of Valhalla. No, no, she cried, half tearing herself away. You do not understand. Of all greatness, of all goodness, all of God are in this man who is more than man, and it is a shameful death to die. Only slaves and thieves so die. He is neither slave nor thief. He is an immortal. He is God. Truly, I tell you, he is God. He is immortal, you say, I contended. Then to die to-day on Golgotha will not shorten his immortality by a hair's breadth in the span of time. He is a god, you say. Gods cannot die. From all I have been told of them, it is certain that gods cannot die. Oh, she cried, you will not understand. You are only a great giant thing of flesh. Is it not said that this event was prophesied of old time? I queried, for I had been learning from the Jews what I deemed their subtleties of thinking. Yes, yes, she agreed. The messianic prophecies. This is the Messiah. Then who am I, I asked, to make liars of the prophets, to make of the Messiah a false Messiah? Is the prophecy of your people so feeble a thing that I, a stupid stranger, a yellow northling in the Roman harness, can give the lie to prophecy and compel to be unfulfilled, the very thing willed by the gods and foretold by the wise men? You do not understand, she repeated. I understand too well, I replied. Am I greater than the gods that I may thwart the will of the gods? Then are gods vain things and the playthings of men. I am a man. I too bow to the gods, to all gods, for I do believe in all gods. Else how came all gods to be? She flung herself so that my hungry arms were empty of her, and we stood apart and listened to the uproar of the street as Jesus and the soldiers emerged and started on their way. 
and my heart was sore in that so great a woman could be so foolish. She would save God. She would make herself greater than God. You do not love me, she said slowly, and slowly grew in her eyes a promise of herself too deep and wide for any words. I love you beyond your understanding, it seems, was my reply. I am proud to love you, for I know I am worthy to love you and am worth all love you may give me. But Rome is my foster mother, and were I untrue to her, of little pride, of little worth, would be my love for you. The uproar that followed about Jesus and the soldiers died away along the street, and when there was no further sound of it, Miriam turned to go, with neither word nor look for me. I knew one last rush of mad hunger for her. I sprang and seized her. I would horse her and ride away with her and my men into Syria, away from this cursed city of folly. She struggled. I crushed her. She struck me on the face, and I continued to hold and crush her, for the blows were sweet. And there she ceased to struggle. She became cold and motionless, so that I knew there was no woman's love that my arms girdled. For me, she was dead. Slowly I let go of her. Slowly she stepped back. As if she did not see me, she turned and went away across the quiet room, and without looking back, passed through the hangings and was gone. I, Ragnar Lodbrok, never came to read nor write, but in my days I have listened to great talk. As I see it now, I never learned great talk, such as that of the Jews learned in their law, nor such as that of the Romans learned in their philosophy and in the philosophy of the Greeks. Yet have I talked in simplicity and straightness, as a man may well talk, who has lived life from the ships of Tostig Ludbrok and the roof of Brunenborough across the world to Jerusalem and back again. And straight talk and simple I gave Sulpicius Quirinius when I went away into Syria to report to him of the various matters that had been at issue in Jerusalem. End of chapter 17